Hi, anyone and everyone. Welcome to Have You Heard About This Case. My name is Sam. And my name is Kelly. Today I'm bringing you part two of the Lee Family Curse, where we discuss the very real case of negligence that caused the death of actor Brandon Lee. I recommend listening to part one of the case to get the real details. But to refresh your memory, in part one, we discussed the predictions of a curse, the untimely death of Bruce Lee, and his son's similar rise to stardom in American cinema. Today, we're going to cover Brandon's iconic film, The Crow. Which is one of my favorites from my childhood. Iconic. I couldn't think of a better word. In the fall of 1992, while doing publicity for Rapid Fire, Lee landed the lead role in Alex Proyas' The Crow, an adaptation of a comic book by the same name. This story follows Lee as Eric Draven. Draven is a rock musician raised from the dead by a supernatural crow to avenge his own death, as well as the rape and murder of his fiance by a dangerous gang in the city. Draven's character is resurrected by a crow landing on his tombstone and tapping it. Guided by the crow, with whom he shares a telepathic connection, Eric sets out to avenge his and his wife Shelley's murders. According to the producer Jeff Most, Brandon Lee had a good insight on the character and liked the lyrical lines within the script, but he didn't want the dialogue to spread aimlessly. So... This caused Lee to focus on the brevity and the rhythm of the lines of dialogue in order to make Eric Draven more threatening. Which I think he does very well. And I think that that is such a hallmark of a good actor to be able to take the script you're given and truly craft a character out of it you know and it seems here and in a lot of the research it seems like he he had an incredible amount of involvement in the dialogue and his decisions as an actor in that are just great you know because yeah i don't know if you guys have seen the crow but the brevity and the rhythm is great (laughs) and him bringing all of that as an actor you can look at his character, look at the mannerisms that he puts into it, and understand mm-hmm. who the character is without any words. Like, this exactly. is a really fantastic example of that in filmmaking. Exactly. Yes. Producer Jeff Most also alleged that Lee said he did not want metaphysical characters besides his own in the film, though I didn't see that anywhere else. Costumer for the film, Roberta Bile, said that Lee modeled Draven after singer Chris Robinson. He is an American musician best known for founding the band The Black Crows. I can totally see that. Do you know, do you know, I didn't know who Chris Robinson was. Well, I I listened to a lot of Black Crows as a kid. And actually, they're going to be here in like two weeks for the NASCAR thing that Chicago is doing. Oh. And I don't want to do anything involving NASCAR. That sounds like too many loud crowds for me but I really want to go yeah. see the Black Crows <laughs> yeah he modeled this this character off of Chris Robinson and 
you know, I looked at some pictures of Chris Robinson, and he had the long hair, but maybe you have more insight into this. Like, how would you say the character of Eric Draven compares to Chris Robinson? Well, I think a lot of it comes from the the time period. At that time period, mm -hmm. Black Crows were... I, I guess you can kind of consider them grunge into alternative rock at that point. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of just had this mm-hmm. like slightly darker demeanor to them. And I feel like mm-hmm. Eric Draven as a character is a darker version of Chris Robinson in mm-hmm. that aspect. Okay. 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 That makes sense. Cause yeah, the, I, I just looked him up after finding out, that he based it on him and all I could find was that he had like founded the band, the black crows. And there was of course a little bit about his recording and, and that kind of thing. But the main picture they have of him is just like a dude with long hair. Like there's nothing really recognizable about it. So I'm glad that you know a little bit more about the black crows and can. Yeah. I don't know like a ton of like, speak, speak like to that. in-depth things about them, but just being as a, a fan of their music in the nineties, that's what I get out of it is kind mm-hmm. of just this like, Right. True, like, rock and roll energy that grunge kind of brought to an even darker level for Eric Draven. Yeah, yeah. So Lee also convinced the team to hire Jeff Amata, who became the stunt coordinator, and Lee and Amata oversaw all the fight choreography. And it sounds like they have a great partnership because they worked on so many movies together and they're inviting each other to projects. Sounds like they had a great friendship, just a tremendous amount of respect for each other as professionals. And Imada and Lee agreed that the character of Eric Draven would not do conventional martial arts moves. His movements needed to be unique, as he's a character without formal martial arts training who was given supernatural abilities upon resurrection. Yeah, I never looked at The Crow as a, a martial arts movie. That, that never really occurred to me. No, no. But with this in mind, they added aerobics to Draven's fighting style in the movie. Which was a like kind of perfect mixture, I feel like. Yes. And speaking of that, both Imada and Lee were pleased to incorporate Brandon's martial arts ability into the design of the character without it being part of the story. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably big for Brandon Lee because as we discussed in part one, Brandon Lee very much did not want to do action movies like his famous father, Bruce Lee. So it was probably big for him that he could still use his talents, but it wasn't the focus. Yeah, and and The Crow is much more in the thriller horror genre of movie, but mm-hmm. it leans heavily towards action. There's a lot of fight right. scenes, but the fight scenes are very artistic because of the 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 acrobatic moves that they do. It's it's like he's mm-hmm. really flying as a crow in a lot of these scenes during these fights and um, it's it's doesn't it make sense the yeah. Imada and and Brandon Lee were the ones who did the fight choreography absolutely like when I found that out I was like oh like the just the breadth and depth of how deep 
Brandon Lee was involved in The Crow is bigger than I thought it was. And it's just, it's such a good movie. Like, before I ever learned about anything that ever happened with Brandon Lee, I remember my mom telling me I had to watch The Crow. And I was probably like Mm -hmm. 10 or 11. No, no. <laughs> yeah. It, well, my mom was always like introducing me. She, she, to, to different like classics. Right, right. And this is a classic. Yeah. And like, I remember she sat me down and I watched Psycho for the first time at like nine. But she wanted to like oh, okay. teach me a little bit about it because she took a, a film class. And so she learned about that was the oh. first overhead shot ever used in film and like she taught me all of that as a little kid watching these iconic horror movies and so she's like you have to watch the crow if i'm not mistaken in psycho wasn't there also like some pioneering special effects at the end of the movie or am i thinking of a different honestly i don't know i've never studied it myself i actually i should i love that movie so much and i know it's it did so many things that like changed film. If memory serves me correctly, the last shot in the movie is like the house, and then it has a man's face superimposed over it. Oh, it does. Mm-hmm. It. And that, yeah, that apparently was a big deal. Like the superimposed, like it had, it had never been done before. Oh, I didn't know I guess. that. Oh, that's interesting. I that's I, a movie I should study. Maybe I'm wrong. I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about because it is Norman's Norman Bates's face, like it's like fading in mm-hmm. and out of the house to his face. Yeah, we'll have to ask your mom. But from my my knowledge, that was yeah the first time they were able to do something like that, and it was in Psycho. Yeah, that's. I love old movies that can, like created the foundation right? for today, like, especially those like classic yeah. stories. Yeah, and like some old creepy movies changed changed things up, just like this one will, and we'll see. And like we said, Brandon was so involved in the development of The Crow, and Mata said that in order to look like a rocker and not an action hero, Lee went on a strict diet weeks before shooting in order to remove a lot of his bulk and went so far as to weigh the food that he ate. Oh, wow. Because he does look kind of, I don't want to say scrawny, but he was not super muscular in that movie. Right. What he did was he relied on these other methods of exercise to elongate and stretch his muscles and lose body fat rapidly. So, like, lean. I was like, lean is kind of the best word because he's still muscular. Yeah. But he's he's not, yeah, it's, it's not like seeing muscles through a yeah. shirt or anything like that. Right, right. But apparently, yeah, he had a significant amount. I mean, he's, you know, a martial arts action star. Like, he had a, a significant amount of bulk that he wanted to drop before doing the movie. And in my research of it, I didn't find anybody who asked him to do this. He just did it, which I respect the hell out of. Yeah, it's again kind of to the method acting where you, you make yourself into that role. Right, right. Or just, like, the discipline of acting. You want the role to appear a certain way, so you're going to take certain actions. The same way he brought the computer, the computer, the video camera to the dojo Mm -hmm. to see which fighting styles would look the best. And this sounds, like, really restrictive, but he was still 
eating and he was still maintaining a healthy lifestyle, hopefully with it, because that's right, an issue right. with some actors that are trying to gain or lose weight quickly. I was going to say, yeah, it's a separate issue. I don't totally agree with actors having to gain or lose weight for a role, but I know that sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. Have you ever seen Chapter 27 about Mark David Chapman no. murdering John Lennon? No, oh no. Jared oh, Leto no. plays Mark David Chapman. Oh, and God. He looks Jared Leto. so much like him. He gained so much weight wow. for it. And I remember watching an interview, and he said that he would get like big, like industrial restaurant size things of Hershey's chocolate syrup and just eat it with a spoon to gain weight. Ugh. And that's Ugh. just, yeah, not only does that sound awful in my opinion that's so unhealthy that's horrible for your body and jared leto is notorious for doing it too Mm -hmm. he's one of those who's like i got this role like we just watched morpheus oh i haven't seen that yet the new it's like the new streaming show oh it's a show i thought it was a movie i think it's a show it might have been a movie either way he looks like he hasn't had a burger in 12 months. Well, the, the movie The Little Things, same thing. And that was probably filmed close to the same time. Yeah, he looks like he weighs like a buck 30. Like, I, when in, I'm like, I could probably kick that guy's ass. And he, I think he gained over 100 pounds for, uh, to play it's Mark crazy. David Chapman. It's crazy. And like, don't get me wrong. Again, I respect the hell out of it as a craft. But as far, I think it's taking your health into your hands exactly. in a way that is very dangerous. It just, it, like, I ain't mad at you for the process. I ain't mad at you for the results. I, I think things are great. But I think this might be taking it a little too far. You might be jeopardizing your, your health a bit here. And, and I hope that you're continually seeing a doctor during that process and... Making Agreed. sure that you are Agreed. staying healthy. Right, exactly. Like, I would hope, I mean, I imagine these days, like, with the budgets movies have and that sort of thing, I would hope they would pay for you to go see a nutritionist. Exactly, yeah, I hope so. I would, yeah, I, I don't know. I only know from theater, and typically in theater, you're never asked to, I mean, you can be, but you're usually not asked to gain or lose weight for a role. Though, there has been a lot of debate recently in the theater community. Most performers put their weight on their resume. Oh, do they? And yes. And that has been at issue, which I kind of agree with. I'm like, I don't understand why anybody needs to know exactly how much you weigh when you're already standing in front of them. Like, that's none of their business. Yeah, and it, like that, oh. that goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about in the last episode with that producer saying that Brandon Lee did not look <laughs> Asian mm-hmm. enough for his role to play his father. Mm-hmm. Like, I understand that there right. are roles that right. do need to fit a visual look specifically. Mm-hmm. But if you're standing yeah. in front of that person, that's the important part of it because y- you're looking at them. You don't need to see, okay, here are your specific numbers. Like Right. You're not you're looking you're looking for their performance. Mm-hmm. What's what's happening with their perform is their performance good? If their performance is good, give them the part. Don't 
ask them how much they weigh. And that's why you have costume departments that will find the right thing for them. Exactly. Yes, ma'am. That's exactly why. Sorry, a little side dish there for y'all about what's going on in the theater world. Uh, Right now, we are talking about eliminating weights on resumes, which I'm kind of for. Yeah, I understand that. Either way, Brandon did this of his own volition, and that's why I included it, because I think it shows his, his mindset as far as the character goes. During pre-production, Imada said that in order to get in character for the resurrection, Lee bought bags of ice in which he submerged himself due to his hypothesis that the feeling of resurrection must be freezing cold. Oh, that's interesting. This scene was shot on the first night of production during the winter. And Imada was said to be surprised that Lee requested the bags of ice due to the weather and the fact that he was already barefoot and bare naked. Yeah, that's intense. That's wild to me. Like, okay, I'm barefoot and bare naked and it's winter. And now will you dump all that ice all over me? Right. Do you know where they filmed? <laughs> Holy crap. This? Like, was it potentially in Canada where a lot of uh, films um, are made. I'm wondering, like, how cold was it really? That's intense. No, in, actually, in America, in Wilmington, North Carolina. Okay, so it's still it going to get cold. pretty cold in North Carolina. Right. Right. So it's going to be decently cold. And you're already barefoot and bare naked. Yeah. And <laughs> so, you're like... Gonna, like, you are going to get wet, even though you're... Like, your, mm-hmm. your body is going to warm up mm-hmm. that snow and that, that water enough. And that's where it can get really dangerous mm-hmm. is when you get wet with that. Mm-hmm. It's funny you mentioned that because key hairstylist Michelle Johnson said that in the rain scenes, Lee would soak himself prior to filming them and then act without a shirt in the cold weather. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, the entire film crew was said to be impressed with his performance and his dedication. And I agree. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've ever been in a situation where you've been with people out in the cold when they're they're wet like this. Um, but something that's really popular where I grew up is a polar bear plunge. And Oh, yeah, they do that here in Chicago. Yeah, the they, they do here. And it's very different here because they do it in Lake Michigan. They um, basically run from the shore into the water and then back out. Where I'm from, all the lakes fully freeze over. And they cut a massive hole in the ice. And you are jumping into like four feet of water straight in. And my sister did it for like seven or eight years in a row. Oh, God. And I remember her first year she did it. And she was, I don't know, like 16, 17 years old. And she did it in a bikini because you really want the least amount of clothes in reality. You do not want wet clothes on Mm -hmm. you in that situation. Um, And she had Mm -hmm. what you do is you jump in, but then you need to get out and run to shore to get in a hot tub to warm your body temperature back up. She and it's a long it's a long run because this this piece of ice is cut out in the middle of the lake and on her run back she fell and her body was just so numb she couldn't control it that she completely split open her knee and she had no idea she did it her body was numb (gasps) from it and that was from like 10 seconds of being in the water. 
So I'm wow. like imagining what it's oh like to, to force yourself into that kind of cold state and act in mm-hmm. it. That's a long period of time in between takes mm-hmm. and all of that. Yep. Yep. And to be like in these raining scenes, to be completely soaked yeah. in between those takes and in be- who knows how many takes of a scene they got to shoot, you know, and he's soaked to the skin. And it makes sense because like his performance is great in it. He he mm-hmm. is actually shivering in the scenes and to now know that's not acting and that's it's real. real yep. It's like, wow. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I know. I had so much fun researching this because it's it makes you love Brandon Lee even more because so much of the crow would not have existed without him. Yeah. The thing is, members of the crew of the crow had come to believe that the movie was cursed. So it eerily mirrors the curse that Brandon was supposedly living with. And the reason the crew members believed this is on the first day of filming on set, a carpenter was nearly electrocuted. Later in the shooting, a construction worker accidentally drove a screwdriver through his hand. Ooh. Oh, I know, right? It got so out of hand that a disgruntled carpenter who worked on the film crashed his car through the studio's back lot. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, out of hand. Out of hand. All right, everybody. We're going to get to the part that's really hard. Because on March 31st, 1993, during filming for The Crow, Brandon Lee was shot on set with a malfunctioning firearm. The lead tip of a bullet from a previous scene had stayed in the barrel of the handgun, and ruptured a major blood vessel when a blank shot was fired at the gun at Lee. Apparently, no one had looked to see if this was a clean handgun. With proper weaponry management on set, Brandon Lee would still be alive today. I have no doubt. The scene on set was when Lee's character walks into his apartment and finds his fiancée being beaten and raped by a thug who fires a Smith & Wesson Model 629 44 caliber Magnum revolver at Lee's character as he walks in the room. And that's already an unbelievably emotional scene. Like, mm-hmm. that, I would say that's the hardest scene in the movie, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <sighs> this part... It makes me really sad, and it makes me really mad. In a film shoot prior to the scene, the gun was used as a prop. However, it was constructed, fabricated, by the prop department specifically. And it was loaded with improperly made dummy rounds, improvised from live cartridges that had the powder charges removed by the special effects crew. So, in close-ups, the revolver would show normal-looking ammunition. However, the crew neglected to remove the primers from the cartridges, and at some point before Brandon Lee's shooting, one of the rounds had been fired. Although there were no powder charges, the energy from the ignited primer was enough to separate the bullet from the casing, 
and push it partway into the gun barrel where it got stuck. This is a dangerous condition known as a squib load. I had never heard of that. I hadn't heard of that either. Yeah, I had never heard of that, but apparently it is something that happens commonly with guns. And if you're trained in firearms, as you should be on set, this should be something you're aware of. Yes, ma'am. You you should absolutely be concerned about that. Absolutely. If it's a gun, especially that you built and fabricated for this movie, Mm -hmm. you should know that prop inside and out. As part of the shot, Lee would flip a switch after being shot. The switch was fitted to a bag on him that contained, also, they're also called squibs, and they're essentially small fireworks. They would then mimic the appearance, the appearance of a bloody wound. This is the style in film. In my past in the theater, we always used blood bags. I've made some of them myself, and they're just what they sound like. The liquid intended to be blood would be filled into a bag with sealed edges and taped to the actor. When the gun was shot, the actor would either have a small pin or just use the force of their hand by putting it to their chest as though they had been shot, breaking the bag from its seal and letting the blood soak into the costume. Yeah, and that sounds very simple. Um, both I, I've heard of both, um, mm-hmm. but I do mm-hmm. think in film they try to use this more intense method because you're right. seeing it much more close so that you want to be able to see like those little fireworks as as Mm -hmm. an impact yeah absolutely and it's just so it's such it's a more detailed medium so you have to do it different ways Mm -hmm. you know i totally get that during the scene it called for the revolver to be fired at lee from a distance of 12 to 15 feet The dummy cartridges that had been improperly cleaned were replaced with blank rounds. The blank rounds contained a powder charge and the primer, but no solid bullet, allowing the gun to be fired with sound and flash effects without the risk of an actual projectile. If you clean and inspect your weapons on set. Right, like that, that's the big part of this. Mm Mm-hmm. However, the gun was not properly checked and cleared before the blank was fired, and the dummy bullet previously lodged in the barrel was then propelled forward by the blank's propellant and shot out the muzzle with almost the same force as if the round were live, striking Lee in the abdomen. Yeah, it's been essentially working the same way as a a real bullet, um, Mm -hmm. but more so than like the the gunpowder inside of the bullet it's literally just throwing a piece of metal Mm -hmm. it it's unconscionable to me it's inexcusable there's uh, there'll be more don't worry you guys i'll get i'll get hot after the actor portraying the gunman pulled the trigger and shot lee lee fell backwards instead of forwards as he was supposed to the director called cut and Lee did not stand up, and the crew thought he was still acting or joking around. See, that that's what's terrifying, is I can understand them assuming that he was still acting. Yeah. However, we have on set Jeff Amada, who immediately checked Lee, noticing something was wrong with his very dear friend right away. When he came close and found Lee unconscious and breathing heavily, 
Sut medic Clyde Basie went over and shook Lee to see if he was dazed by hitting his head during the fall. But he did not think Lee had been shot since there was no visible bleeding. So Basie took Lee's pulse, which was regular, but within two to three minutes, it slowed dramatically before stopping. Wow. So he's probably having a lot of internal bleeding, I'm assuming. It, it ruptured an artery yeah. in his abdomen. Wow. And Brandon was rushed to New Hanover Regional Medical Center in Wilmington, North Carolina. Attempts to save Brandon were unsuccessful, and after six hours of emergency surgery, Lee was pronounced dead on March 31st, 1993, at 1.03 p.m. He was only 28 years old. God, that's still so young. 28. 28. The shooting was ruled an accident due to negligence, which it absolutely was. Inexcusable negligence that should have led to charges filed, but did not. A police spokesman addressed what happened after and said, quote, it wasn't the first time they tried the scene. The gun had been specifically constructed by the props team to simulate realistic rounds, and that is how the accident happened. However, had someone been on scene that was specifically trained in weaponry, which is much more common now on movie sets, that person likely would not have let the gun be fired again without another check. Exactly. Like, if, if you had somebody who was trained to know how firearms work and what could go wrong, this would have been avoidable. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel also the pain that it must have been. The pain that Jeff Amata must have been in. Oh, absolutely. When this happened. Uh, you know, we just discussed how they were clearly very close and very and respected each other highly. He had known Brandon, I think, almost his whole life. And I feel so horrible that he knew right away something wasn't right. I, I bet he could tell with the fall immediately that mm-hmm. he, he mm-hmm. It sounds like Brandon was the type of actor that would not make a big stylistic decision in blocking in that way, falling backwards right. versus forwards. Cause right. if you know the scene, right. Like, it, right. That's kind of part of it. Right. And if you, if Jeff, Jeff Amata and Brandon both worked on the fight choreography. Yeah. So he probably had that realization of like, something's not right from the moment it happened. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that breaks my heart. I feel horrible. And we'll hear a little bit from the actor who fired as well. And this is all such an unavoidable tragedy. Yeah, I can't imagine that spot as well as the other actor because, like, that's not your Mm -hmm. job to know how that works and know what errors. It's your job to know what to do in the moment with it and obviously be safe and, and know the basics that you need to know. But that's not a basic thing for him. Right. And the thing is, it, we talk a little bit, well, you talk a little bit more about onset professionals, but it is truly, truly not that actor's responsibility. It's not. There should be a weapons or a props person there whose job that is. Mm-hmm. And we will hear a little bit about that as well. 
the authorities investigating the crime initially said that the squibs that were strapped to Brandon's chest were what caused his wounds. Officer Michael Overton said, quote, when the other actor fired the shot, the explosive charge went off in the bag. After that, we don't know what happened, end quote. So that sounds like a pretty early assumption of blaming, of, yeah. of not, of still blaming a prop, but mm-hmm. not as... We don't know what happened. Yeah, yeah, like not as severely and uh, a severe mistake as not cleaning the gun. So after Officer Michael Overton spoke, the doctor who performed Brandon Lee's emergency surgery was said to be vehement in his disagreement with the police's assessment. Dr. Warren W. McMurray of the New Hanover Regional Medical Center in North Carolina, where Lee died, concluded that the injuries were fatal and consistent with a bullet wound. Dr. McMurray said, quote, he felt that it was what we were most likely dealing with. McMurray added that he saw no signs of an explosion and that the entry wound was the size of a silver dollar. Wow. I know. It's awful. That's a very large entry wound, I believe. That's large. Yes. For, for that that's type large. of gun, I can't believe... I could be wrong. But... I can't believe there wasn't more bleeding on set. Well, I think that could depend on exactly where the entry wound on his body was and, like, his positioning once he fell backward. Fell. Like, that. I think that all can have an impact. Yeah. So even the other on-set professionals who knew Brandon, including his close friend John Soet, were unconvinced that the squib charge could do such damage. Soet said, quote, I've worked on films and directed a few low-budget features. As powerful as squibs are, I can't recall a single incident where anyone was injured by one. Generally, they are pretty powerful. They do carry a hefty explosive charge. If you are not well padded, you can get a bruise. So from industry professionals' opinions, the squib fireworks may have caused a bruise at most. But that was such a close distance. You said what? Like 12 to 15 feet? Yep. yep. That's a very close distance. The, the true cause of Brandon's injury was clearly the mishandled firearm. According to Dr. McMurray, the projectile piece of shrapnel from the previous firing of the dummy gun, quote, made a straightforward path to Lee's spine. X-rays indeed showed a lodged metal object. The Wilmington Police Department consequently ruled the incident as an accidental shooting. Again, they're, they're, are they still trying to deny that that was the actual cause of his death? Yeah, it sounds like they're walking it back and saying it's an accidental shooting now. Um, and it is. It's negligent homicide. But they're trying to get around that. Mm-hmm. And... As soon as Brandon's passing made the news, there's a frenzy of rumors surrounding the curse on the Lee family. One odd and frightening example is that Bruce Lee's biopic, Dragon, predicted the death of his son just months before. Oh, interesting. In the biopic, Bruce Lee is battling a metaphorical demon that has been haunting him since birth. The demon even shows Bruce his own tombstone in the movie. At the end of Dragon, 
the demon suddenly loses interest in Bruce and heads towards his son, Brandon. Just two months before the film's release, Brandon was dead. The last troubling and tragic detail wow. of the curse surrounded both Bruce and Brandon's deaths. Bruce Lee died filming Game of Death. After his death, the plot changed to an international martial arts movie star who takes on an international crime syndicate and survives a disguised assassin shooting him on his set. In 1993, 15 years after Game was released, Lee's son Brandon was killed after he was accidentally shot while filming The Crow. Wow, that's... It is, like, you can understand why people are saying a curse with these sorts of coincidences. And here's where I'm going to talk about some stuff that makes me really mad because it puts a lot of people in danger. I'm going to share some rules surrounding weaponry and movie sets. These details are, of course, more accessible now with the recent death of Helena Hutchins with a prop gun in New Mexico. Firstly, the responsibility for the use of guns and other weapons on set resides with the movie's properties master or with an armory expert. They are meant to secure the weapons when they are not being used and instruct actors on their proper and safe use. They are also on hand to load the firearms and check them after every scene. However, currently, in 2023, there is no definitive set of regulations on the use of firearms across the film industry. Really? I know. That's so wild, it hardly fits in my head. That, that surprises me. As someone who is trained so stringently in just a live theater setting, I can't believe that there is not a film-wide set of rules here. The U.S. Federal Workplace Safety Agency doesn't regulate gun safety on set, and many states leave it to the industry to create and follow its own rules. Hmm. Like, that, that just seems like a, a lapse in judgment. Like, wh why not Absolutely. make... Like, we, we have countrywide standards on firearms like there are still different things in each state but at least there's a general standard and then each state can then create their own oh, right and the closest thing to a binding agreement on gun safety is published by the industry-wide labor management safety industry its advice is as follows one blanks can kill treat firearms as if they are loaded Two, refrain from pointing a firearm at yourself or anyone else. Three, never place your finger on the trigger unless you are ready to shoot. Four, anyone involved in using a firearm must be thoroughly briefed at an onset safety meeting. Five, only a qualified person should load the firearm. Six, protective shields, eye and hearing protection should be used by anyone in close proximity to or in line of fire. Seven, any actor who is required to stand near the line of fire should be allowed to witness the loading of the firearms. 
The committee has stated that their rules are merely guidelines and are not, quote, binding laws or regulations. And it should also be noted that the document of these rules was last updated in 2003. Oh, wow. Like, I don't disagree with any of those statements. I would love to see more detail in all of those statements. Mm-hmm. 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 And that's as close as we have. Like, that's that's all we've got in the years and years and years of cinema that there's been. We have, like, this flimsy, it not officially, not binding laws or regulations. Wow. It's insane to me. It's insane to me. And that it was last updated in 2003, 20 years ago. Right. Again, that just makes me think of that, that movie that was, that I, I kind of got to see films. Like, I, I should bring them out. I don't know where they are right now. But I actually have casings from the set. Mm. Um, mm. And they look like real bullet casings. Um, they were blanks. Mm-hmm. We do know that. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, it legitimately looks like a, a real bullet casing. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote where I must say some stuff and uh, we'll talk about it. To come back to the crow, the director of photography, Darius Wolski, said, quote, my movie, The Crow, was also low budget. He elaborated, we were very young, so we had all the energy to work 14, 15 hours a day. But the bottom line was there was just not enough money to do it safely. That's all. That's the bottom line. Crow was a non-union film. In those days, the reality was that North Carolina was a right-to-work state. There was no law that an armorer had to be on set. We had armorers on the set when we were doing big shootouts with lots of guns because we needed people to handle it. But when the action happened, there was one prop gun, and the prop guy handled it. You just cannot blame someone for not having experience. End quote. And I would like to vehemently disagree with that statement. You watch me blame this professional. I think you're telling me that there was a prop person on set when that gun was shot. A prop person from the department that fully fabricated this weapon? I think you should blame this professional who worked in the process of this entire gun. And yet somehow it's carelessly written off as, quote, not having experience. I call bullshit on that. Yeah, like, if you are the ones creating it, you should absolutely have the knowledge of every detail of the workings of that gun. And we've, we've already said absolutely. this a few times. But I, I, I can't imagine if I were to be creating something that had the potential of killing somebody without obviously mm-hmm. ever wanting it to. Like, the goal is to simulate, yeah. not actually do that. I would right. want to know every detail of that machine. Absolutely. And also, we should call attention to what Wolski says. There was just not enough money to do it safely. Then don't do it. Yeah. That's the bottom line. Or, or try to find more investors. 
something. Yeah, he says there wasn't enough money to do it safely. That's all. That's the bottom line. No, the bottom line is you can't do it safely, so you don't do it. Well, what you're saying there is I'm okay putting people's lives on the line. That That's exactly. what that means. Yeah, yeah, you're okay with your performers being in jeopardy of their lives, their lives being in jeopardy. You're okay with that. Yeah. You're okay with the fact that the props guy maybe didn't have experience and that's why Brandon Lee died. And it, like, it, no, I'm sure there's no. a props department. Like, it's usually not like, just one person I'm in sure. a movie like this. If that guy wasn't experienced enough, you need to find someone else in your department to fill that slot. Exactly. Why? That's why I mentioned a little bit in theater about how there is always a props artisan and then people on their staff. So if you knew that that gun that you fabricated yourself that you had already fired once was going to be on scene that day, why was the person who did the fabrication not there? Yeah. And why did this props man? And I find it extremely hard to believe that if the movie the movie is low budget, I find it extremely hard to believe that the props department was large. And I find it extremely difficult to believe that this particular props person who is on scene wouldn't have been a part of fabricating that gun at all. I would think that would be an all-hands-on-deck situation where you actually have to build a firing gun. Well, and thinking about it in the, the aspect of saying, okay, on the bigger scenes, there were other people right. there. But the thing is, there's not many scenes in that movie that isn't a big scene involving guns. I, I haven't watched this movie exactly. in many years. This might be the only scene. That, exactly. Like So one more day of them being there? Right. I think it's extremely careless for him to just say that you can't blame someone for not having experience because you absolutely, absolutely should. You should. That person should have known what was going on. That person should have handled the gun before it was given to an actor. That person should have checked the barrel to make sure it was clean. Literally, if you had even taken a look at the gun, you would have noticed there was something lodged in the barrel. Yeah. Wolski went on to talk about other experiences, like the Mexican with director Gore Verbinski and others. Quote, Since Crow, I've done a lot of movies with guns with proper armors and proper prop men. If the procedure is done right, there's no way for something like this to occur. Exactly. He continued. There's no way that there's a bullet on the set. There's just no way. If you work with proper prop masters and armors, and I've worked in New Mexico, New York, and then London and Ireland, all over the world, it just doesn't happen. There's so many checkpoints in the course of shooting that this should not happen. End quote. Which I totally agree with. However, I also think this statement is in direct contradiction to his previous one. Just because a movie is low budget does not mean that its crew members should be any less highly trained, especially when fabricating a weapon that will fire bullets. It sounds to me he learned from his mistakes, and unfortunately that mistake Mm -hmm. ended somebody's life. Exactly. And everybody was just okay with the scene going forward with one dude who 
apparently didn't have the experience to handle. Why? Why? Why would you ever let? Uh, I just this is my worst nightmare come true as a stage manager. Like this is, I can't think of anything more horrible than this happening. Like, and someone should be held accountable for that. You should, you shouldn't just say, oh, well, he didn't know, he didn't have experience, he didn't know what was going on. Like, no, he should have had the experience. And it should have, there should have been no way. Well, you also think about it as like, okay, a a car accident. If you're somebody who is driving and you, like, let's just say you're driving a stick or something and you don't know how to drive a stick and you cause a car accident that kills somebody else, Mm -hmm. you're still liable because it's you who caused the accident. Like, it might not go a whole lot further than that, depending on the situation and depending on the the families involved. But Mm -hmm. they have the right to, like, ask for charges to be filed and, like... Absolutely. Yeah, and that's that could be negligence because you got behind the wheel of a car. You don't know how to drive. Right. It's culpable negligence. On April 3rd, 1993, Brandon was buried next to his father at the Lakeview Cemetery in Seattle, Washington. A private funeral attended by 50 took place in Seattle on April 3rd. The following day, 200 of Lee's family and business associates attended a memorial service at actor Polly Bergen's house in Los Angeles. Among the attendees were Kiefer Sutherland, Lou Diamond Phillips, David Hasselhoff, Steven Seagal, David Carradine, and Melissa Etheridge. As we were talking about just now, in August of 1993, Brandon's mother, Linda Lee Caldwell, filed a lawsuit against the filmmakers alleging negligence in the death of her son. The suit was settled two months later under undisclosed terms. Which probably means she they just paid her. This is completely a private family matter, and I'm very relieved that Brandon's loved ones didn't have to go through an entire trial to prove the obvious negligence on the part of the movie. But I think a case settled out of court in this manner speaks volumes to who bears culpability for Brandon's death. Exactly. I, I think, like, we don't need to know the amount. We don't need it on any, any of that. But I Mm-mm. think it's Mm-mm. a reasonable assumption that they paid her. And mm-hmm. that shows that they are, they're probably scared to go to court. Yeah, they don't want to go to court. They don't want to go to court. Because, yeah, and it, again, like... Thank God they didn't put his poor family through, like, a trial. Again, 28 years old. And also, I have another heartbreaking thing that's coming up. Because in an interview just prior to his death, Lee quoted a passage from Paul Bowles' book, The Sheltering Sky, which he had chosen for his wedding invitations. It is now inscribed on his tombstone. Quote, because we don't know when we will die, we get to think of life as an inexhaustible well, and yet everything happens only a certain number of times, and a small number, really. How many more times will you remember a certain afternoon of your childhood, an afternoon that is so deeply a part of your being that you can't even conceive of your life without it? 
perhaps four or five times more, perhaps not even that. How many more times will you watch the full moon rise? Perhaps 20? And yet it all seems limitless. End quote. It's a beautiful thing for your, your tombstone, but it's, it's... It's beautiful. Also, like, terrifying at the same time. It's terrifying and awful because in 1990, Lee had met Eliza Hutton in a director's office where she worked as a personal assistant. Lee and Hutton moved in together in early 1991 and became engaged in October 1992. They planned to get married in Ensenada, Mexico on April 17, 1993, a week after Lee was set to complete filming on The Crow. Instead, Eliza rushed to her husband's side in the hospital. Well, I didn't know he was engaged. Yeah. Yep. They were supposed to get married right after he finished. Right after he finished. He was supposed to get married. That quote that we just read was supposed to be on their wedding invitations. Wow. It's, yeah, it's horrible. After Lee's death, his fiancée Eliza and his mother supported the director Proyas's decision to complete The Crow. Again, tragically, at the time of Lee's death, he was only eight days away from completion of the movie. A majority of the film had already been shot with Lee, and he only had three more days of shooting required of him on the schedule. To complete the film, stunt doubles Chad Stahelski and Jeff Cadiente served as stand-ins, and special effects were used to give them Lee's face. In this way, Lee's death gave rise for deceased actors to complete or have new performances since pioneering CGI techniques were used to complete the crowd. These new techniques would cause new rumors, though. It abounded that the actual fatal scene where Brandon was shot and killed was used in the movie. This is patently false. The new technology was used and and that's probably what caused this rumor, but it's just that. As we said, the movie was completed with Brandon Standens. The fatal shot scene is not in the movie. I can't imagine a studio ever making that choice. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. And like, we, we've obviously, we've talked about it. We, we both have seen this movie. We both really love this movie. And I remember hearing this when I was younger, that that scene was in there. But I, I always had that, mm-hmm. that thought of, like, a studio just, they would never release that. No. No. Why would you release video evidence of your culpable negligence? Yeah. Like, just that in itself. But then the, there's the respect <laughs> to him and his family. Exactly. And, like, even in crime shows, like, true crime shows, mm-hmm. you can't show images like that no 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 yeah it's that's why it's all reenactment exactly you know but nevertheless the rumor proliferated it's another root just like the curse surrounding brandon lee and his father and even though the police had ruled brandon lee's death an accident there were theories surrounding his death just like his father He had died on a movie set, just like Bruce Lee did. And was the curse fulfilling itself? In the aftermath of Brandon's death, 
it was speculated that he was intentionally killed. Just as after Bruce Lee's death, rumors spread that the Chinese mafia had orchestrated it. These wild theories remain only rumors. Yeah, it's like, what, what would the motivation be for killing Brandon? Right. On a film set. Yeah, like, is it is it to perpetuate that rumor of a curse? Because that seems pretty ridiculous to me. Right. Right. In, in front of so many witnesses, why would you? It, it makes no sense. And like we mentioned before, the actor who fired the fatal shot was said to have been haunted by the incident. I haven't named him here, as I fully believe this is a case of negligent homicide by the team of the film and not an intentional act committed by the performer. You can Google him and find him if you'd like, but it seems like he was truly shattered by what happened. I can't imagine. He didn't speak about it until 2005, and when he did, he said, quote, it absolutely wasn't supposed to happen. He also gave a telling detail saying, quote, I wasn't even supposed to be handling the gun until we started shooting the scene and the director changed it. See, that that's also uh, like... Remember what I said at the beginning about the path of the gun and who is supposed to handle yeah. it? It is critical to the safety of everyone. Well, and that actor might not have been as trained to handle it with the props team as the other actor was. Exactly. It, I, if he wasn't even supposed to be handling the gun, like, come on, what's your props tracking? Wh- like, and even then, he's not responsible because you didn't clean the gun. Right. And the, the performer further said in the interview, quote, I just took a year off and I went back to New York and I didn't do anything. I didn't work. What happened to Brandon was a tragic accident. I don't think you ever get over something like that. End quote. And I'm sure it's one of those situations where even though he doesn't deserve to feel like this and it, it really isn't his fault, I'm sure he feels immense guilt over it. He has to he has to feel just terrible. Just I I can't imagine something like that happening on a movie set, you know, where you're as a performer on a movie set The way I've been trained working with performers is the most important thing. One of the most important things is making sure that the environment that your performers are in is one that they feel safe to create in. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like this wasn't a safe space for any of these actors involved. Yeah, and when you think about it too, like an actor's job is literally to pretend to be doing something they're really not necessarily knowledgeable in they're in this role he's a criminal who is trying to kill somebody else Mm -hmm. i imagine that's something that he's not personally familiar with so he's handling these weapons with what now sounds like incredibly minimal training because he wasn't supposed to be the one holding it and doing that And he's he's to pretend like he knows exactly what he's doing. Yep. Exactly that. Exactly that. Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, premiered at Mann's Chinese Theater in Hollywood on April 28, 1993. The film is dedicated to Brandon with the quote, 
The key to immortality is first living a life worth remembering. So I like that quote. Yeah, it's so nice. The event was considered a celebration of both Brandon and his father, Bruce. Brandon's mother, Linda, and sister, Shannon, attended the premiere. Linda was said to have found the film excellent and a great tribute to her family. Oh, I'm glad that she was able to enjoy it. I agree. I agree. I think that that is so lovely that she felt like it was a good representation. Well, it was probably a good representation because Brandon gave so many recommendations and had input mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure she did as well. Yeah. I didn't I didn't look into that in my research and I should have, but I do know that they spoke with Brandon at length for many hours about making this movie. So I would hope that they had talked to his wife as well. Mm-hmm. They probably had permissions cuz it sounds like they did it respectfully yeah. overall. Like there was that producer thing, but everything else sounds like it was done very respectfully for the family. Yeah, yeah. Brandon had more to add to his legacy though. As in 1994, The Crow opened at number one in the United States in theaters, grossing $11.7 million. The film ultimately grossed $23 million over the budget of the project, was 24th among all films released in the U.S. that year, and 10th among R-rated films released that year. And it's hard to release an R-rated film and get super high numbers, because you're cutting off mm-hmm. so much of your audience by making it R-rated. And so that, and also, if you guys just went over budget, it still would have been right. a, a success. Like, unfortunately, his death mm-hmm. probably added to the success of it. Like, in reality, mm, potentially. people probably went to see because it was a tragedy. Um, but... It, it still would have made money. It is such a great film. And if you guys just went over budget right. and just spent that money, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. If you just spent that money on an armorer, on a trained props artisan, on one person being on set, you know. Like- well, also, you said he had three days left of filming. It's three days left, potentially one. This could have been the last firearms day because, like I said, yeah. there aren't many yeah. scenes outside of the really there big aren't. fight scenes that have guns where it sounds like they were there. Right. Mm-hmm. That That's probably not going insanely over budget for that. Exactly. He only had three days left of shooting, like face shooting, to do. And how... Yeah, how many dollars would it have been over your budget when you and you end up grossing twenty three million over the budget of your project? How many more dollars would it have cost to have saved Brandon Lee's life? Like that's so awful. Like it's still making money. Yeah, it was in fact the most successful film of Brandon Lee's career. And the awful truth is that he never lived to see its success and its continued status as a cult classic film, inspiring new generations of fans all the time. One of whom is my best friend, who has always called it her favorite movie. Her favorite movie. She even has a tattoo honoring the movie with the outlines of a crow draping across her shoulders. 
this is the kind of beautiful thing that Brandon Lee missed out on. Yeah, well, not only did he not have the ability to see the success of this film, he never had an opportunity to make something that's more successful. Right. He didn't get a chance. He didn't get a chance. The movie was dedicated to Brandon and his fiancée, Eliza Hutton. Critical consensus was that it was, quote, filled with style and dark, lurid energy. The Crow is an action-packed visual feast that also has a soul in the performance of the late Brandon Lee. That's such a good way to put it. Filled with a style, mm-hmm. filled with style and dark, lurid energy. Like, that. that's a really mm-hmm. great description of the movie. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And reviewers praise the action and visual style. Rolling Stone called it, quote, a dazzling fever dream of a movie. The New York Times said it was a genre film of the highest order, stylish and smooth. Roger Ebert was also impressed, saying it was, quote, a stunning work of visual style, which we all know now as well how intimately Brandon was involved with this visual style for the movie. So it's more praise for the late star. Absolutely. Because, yeah, almost every single one of these reviews, rave reviews from these big publications, are praising the visual style. And he had so much to do with that. And it really was, like, kind of... I don't want to say the first of its style, but I feel like it took Mm -hmm. it to a new level. Where it's a very, mm-hmm. like, visually dark movie. Everything's kind of in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. a black and white movie. But it right. feels like it is. Some reviewers said Lee's death had a melancholic effect on viewers. With one even saying that Lee, quote, haunts every frame. He, he, it, it's true. And it, it's designed to be like that. It's but true. now knowing the reality of yeah. it. It, it brings it to another level. The Chicago Tribune was not so kind, with Jessica Siegel writing that Lee never quite left the shadow of his father and that the crow did not live up to Lee's full, unexploited potential. Reviewer James Berardinelli called it an appropriate epitaph to Lee, and Roger Ebert said that it was not only Brandon's best film, but also better than any of his father's. And especially with his father having such a high regard in the film industry. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's a huge compliment. Yeah, I, I would like to respectfully disagree with my hometown newspaper and instead lift up what a wonderful comment Roger Ebert had. And even if the movie was better than his father's, I don't know if that was ever Brandon's goal. I don't, doesn't sound like it was. I don't think he wanted to be better than his father, just a performer like his father. Yeah, he he wanted to create things that were more his own style and his own path, just like his father did. Right, right. And I don't think Jessica Siegel is correct in saying that Brandon never stepped from his father's shadow. I think Brandon blazed his own trail using the gifts given to him by his father and he found his own path in Hollywood. He he clearly had a keen eye and a good instinct. And I would bet that if Brandon had lived, he may even have become a director. I could see that. 
I say that just based on his opinions on visual style, the meticulousness of preparation from filming his martial arts to see what they would look like, all the way to fully submerging himself in water in The Crow. Brando became an icon in his own right and did things his own way. I even saw in my research that The Crow was called the, quote, pinnacle of goth cult classics. Yeah, I think that's fitting. (laughs) So Brandon's goal was achieved. He did become a dramatic actor. He did make a movie that so many loved. He was just robbed of the honors by careless weaponry management, and that is so sad. Yeah, and I would also say, I do feel like he has a legacy living on in his combination of martial arts and doing acrobatic moves kind of combined in there because that's mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. That is, and it, it, it's continuing to like go to like different places with it. But so many movies mm-hmm. adapted that mixture that are still, mm-hmm. still happening today. And I think that's an important legacy that, that he was able to leave. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, I just have a lot of thoughts here that I shared with all of you today. And I, my main thought that I'll leave everyone with is just that I am sad that someone who was so devoted to his craft and to filmmaking was taken from us because of something so simple so simple as properly checking your weaponry on a movie set yeah or just just having somebody there who is trained to recognize that that needs to be done mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just like the director of photography said after after the crow and he worked there was no way it could have happened there's no way it should have happened and That's the same for The Crow. I don't care if it was low budget. I don't care if it would have been extra money to bring in the person who built the gun. I don't care about any of that. If you can't do your production safely, keeping your performers in a safe space to create, then you don't get to do your production. Yeah, and using the excuse of it being an... uh right to work state Mm -hmm. well if you're risking harming Mm -hmm. people they have a right to not work for you well i recommend everyone go watch the crow yes i do as well it it truly is such a great movie you and i were just saying yesterday once we record this we have to have a movie we're gonna do it oh yeah it's been many years since i watched it and i will happily rewatch it at any point oh yeah we gonna we're gonna do it yeah and Yeah, just the next time you see The Crow, watch The Crow, remember how involved Brandon was with it, and pass the movie along. Keep it a cult classic, you know? I love it. Yeah, I think we're kind of at this, like, time period now where it's been long enough away from the movie that this younger generation might not know it. Yeah, and they need to. And it is a cult classic, but sometimes they need to be reintroduced. Right. To that. <laughs> exactly. We need to go Just like my mom bringing up Psycho for me. I was going to say we need to go to the streets and grassroots just find these kids in parks and be like, "If you watched the crow yet, go watch the crow." <laughs> <laughs> right? We won't be creepy at all. Right, that won't be weird. 
All right. Well, thank you for listening to Have You Heard About This Case. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can find us on Instagram at Have You Heard About This Case Pod, on TikTok at HYHATC, or you can email us at Have You Heard About This Case at gmail.com. We'll talk to you later. Bye.